Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 382 of the Juice Box Podcast. Today, my guest is Jeffrey Millman. Jeffrey is a PhD. He's a researcher, and he is working on some very interesting stuff regarding type 1 diabetes that I think you're going to enjoy hearing about. I reached to Jeffrey after reading an article online that started off by saying, new technique efficiently converts human stem cells into insulin-producing cells. And I thought, well, that's interesting and seems like a leap. I reached out to Jeff, and he was kind enough to come on the show. Best thing about him is that as he's explaining all of these, what I'm going to tell you are pretty technical ideas, he does it in a way that you can understand. I mean, I understood it, so... I'm assuming that means we all can. Please remember that nothing you hear on the Juice Box podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. Please always consult a physician before making changes to your healthcare plan or becoming bold with insulin. Today's episode of the Juice Box Podcast is sponsored by the Dexcom G6 Continuous Glucose Monitor and the Omnipod Tubeless Insulin Pump. You can get a free, no-obligation demo of the Omnipod sent directly to your house by going to myomnipod.com forward slash juicebox and learn more about the Dexcom G6 Continuous Glucose Monitor at dexcom.com forward slash juicebox. When you use the Dexcom G6 like my daughter has been using forever now, you're going to see your blood sugar trends in real time. In what direction are they moving? And how fast are they moving in that direction? There's a huge difference between having a 95 blood sugar that is stable and a 95 blood sugar that is rising or falling. Rising blood sugars may need insulin. Falling blood sugars may need carbs. Steady blood sugars don't need anything. But with the finger stick, all you see is 95. But with the Dexcom, you see 95 and all the rest. The best thing is you can share that information. If you're an adult with type 1 diabetes and you want your wife, your mother, your sister to see that information, they can. They can follow it on their iPhone or Android phone. Actually, you could share that information with up to 10 people at a time. Imagine what a great thing that might be for your child away at school or your child up the street, husband, wife, school nurse, anyone you want to see your information can see it and no finger sticks. Come on. Dexcom.com forward slash juice box. Get in the game. The Omnipod tubeless insulin pump makes your life easier. You do not need to be injecting insulin all the time with a pen or a syringe. And if you already have a pump, but it's not the Omnipod, the Omnipod doesn't have tubing. So you don't need to be connected to a controller or have to disconnect to shower, go for a run, play a sport, or take a swim. You can get that insulin the way you're meant to, 24-7. My daughter's been wearing an Omnipod tubeless insulin pump since she was four years old. She is 16 now. She's had an Omnipod on every day. It has been an absolute friend in this journey as has the Dexcom. Omnipod would be thrilled to send you a free, no obligation demo. Do that at myomnipod.com forward slash juicebox. 
And of course, there are links in the show notes of this podcast player and at juiceboxpodcast.com to all of the sponsors. One last thing, head over to t1dexchange.org forward slash juicebox to take a very short survey and that information will be collected anonymously. It's 100% HIPAA compliant and it goes to making huge decisions that help people with type 1 diabetes every day. It is a selfless, easy thing you can do to help people with type 1 and you can also support the podcast when you do it. Dexcom, Omnipod, T1D Exchange, they're great sponsors, so check them out. Dexcom.com forward slash juicebox. Myomnipod.com forward slash juicebox. T1DExchange.org forward slash juicebox. I put the ads up front today so you can really settle in and focus on what Jeff is saying. It's pretty fascinating. As a matter of fact, it's astonishing. All right, let's get going. I have a handful of questions, but mainly I just like to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I, I appreciate the invite. And one of the things that we try to do over here is to reach as uh, wide of an audience as as possible. And so I view this as a good opportunity to reach further into the um, type 1 diabetes audience. Hi, my name is Dr. Jeffrey Millman. I'm an assistant professor of medicine and biomedical engineering at the Washington University School of Medicine. My lab uses stem cells for the study of treatment of diabetes, and I'm very happy to be here today. Oh, thank you so much for doing this. Okay. Uh, how do we do this? Am I calling you Jeff, Jeffrey, Dr. Millman? What do you like? Um, I would say Jeff would probably be best. <laughs> All right, Jeff. Well, I'm Scott, and um, I saw an article uh, that was floating around in the news. Well, let me see if I can be more honest than that, Jeff. Uh, there's the thing that I think of is cure season. Um, where everyone floats their research out as far as they can. I always assume they're looking for more funding. And it has this sort of uh, unintended consequence of reaching newly diagnosed people who think that they've been diagnosed just five seconds before the cure was going to come. And mm -hmm. so I always kind of pick through them to see what's interesting and what seems more like, you know, what I just described. And yours seemed really interesting. And I just thought this this seems rooted in real science. Uh, it seems like science that's available to us now that we understand, and that and that's why I reached out. I guess first, let me understand. You know, how did you? What did you go to college for? What What were you thinking of doing when you were becoming a student? Right. So I um, definitely didn't have diabetes research on my mind when I went into college. Even doing biomedical research was not a thought that had uh, crossed my mind. Uh, my, uh, I went to college and got a degree in chemical engineering, uh, actually. I, had, I came from a very uh, uh, poor and rural area in North Carolina that didn't have a, a very robust school system. And so I wasn't actually exposed to what, um, what, that, what biomedical research was, uh, let alone what... Um, kind of uh, biology was. Uh, and so I went into college thinking I would just go and 
be an engineer, get a good paying job, uh, you know, raise a family and all that sort of good stuff. And actually during my uh, time as a undergraduate doing chemical engineering, I became more and more exposed to the overall biomedical sciences. Um, and I thought, well, that's pretty interesting, you know, maybe uh, going and doing work that is actually um, helping people's health is more interesting than going and working at a chemical plant to go and make the latest and greatest in shampoos, for example, or at, at a petroleum plant, uh, which is pretty typical for a chemical engineer. Uh, so I went on after my undergraduate's uh, work um, to uh, complete a PhD still in chemical engineering, but I sought out a uh, laboratory that uh, did some um, so, some work with uh, stem cells. And about halfway through my time dur during my PhD, uh, mostly trying to catch up on, on the biology um, kind of classroom training that, that I hadn't uh, received during my undergraduate degree, I received a unique opportunity that my lab received um, funding uh, from the JDRF, which is uh, one of the largest supporters of, of diabetes um, uh, research in, in the world. And that set me on the course that I've been on um, ever since. So they, they um, uh, awarded a, a grant um, to, to my lab that uh, covered the last portion of my training during my PhD. Um, and during that, I uh, got exposure to um, diabetes, the, uh, the needs uh, that um, patients with diabetes have and, and how stem cells could um, be helpful for, for, for them. Yeah. Um, and so that prompted me after I got my PhD um, that, you know, I was looking at all the options that I had after, after that. Um, and I was like, well, I really enjoyed doing the, the research, but scientifically that the questions of um, how do you make a cell from a stem cell that can respond to sugar and secrete insulin. I thought that scientifically was very interesting. And I obviously didn't realize how, how um, major of a need that that was uh, for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and so after that, I switched my trajectory completely to stem cell biology for, for the context of um, uh, coming up with a functional cure for, for diabetes. Um, and that's led me to where I am today. That's cool. I want to ask you a question. I don't want to get too far off the path, though, but you went to MIT. So I was wondering how frustrating it was in high school to not be in a terrific school system. Is that something you felt as a kid? I didn't really understand my situation until I was um, much older. If you're kind of born and raised in a certain area, you don't really know what you're missing out on. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I was fortunate um, in that for the last two years of my high school, I was um, able to get into... Um, this uh, statewide um, magnet school program. So I was actually able to, for the last few years of high school, leave my school district and uh, go. It's, part, it's, a, it's a high school that's actually part of the um, UNC system. And so I got to, to live on, on campus there for free and get um, advanced coursework that I did not, uh, I was not able to get during um, my, um, you know, pre-high school and first two years of high school in, in my, um, uh, the school district that I grew up in. And, and so that, that, that's really, um, you know, began to open my eyes to what the other possibilities were, though I didn't really get my head wrapped around biomedical sciences until I got into college. Yeah. But I would say, uh, going to that, um, 
magnet school for high school was very um, important to me because I don't know if I would have been necessarily uh, receptive to the new knowledge out there about, you know, what biomedical research actually was if I hadn't received a stronger foundation that the, um, uh, the second high school that I went to was able to afford me. So in hindsight, it's frustrating, but at the time I didn't Didn't really realize what my situation was. It is really interesting, isn't it? That you just don't know what you don't know. Um, I'm by the way, imagining your entire family, uh, that they must have Monday through Sunday t-shirts that say my son went to MIT, my brother went to MIT. I would be wearing them constantly. I, to to me, it's a, a very impressive thing. So, um, you know, it, it's an it's amazing path to get from where you were to there and now doing this. So um, I wonder if you could tell me why stem cells are more interesting than other avenues for helping people with who can't make insulin. I guess maybe we'll start, I'll start off by saying that there is a functional cure for diabetes that is already out there, and that is cell replacement therapy taking insulin-producing cells that can be uh, taken from a deceased donor mm-hmm. uh, and transplanting them into a patient with uh, type 1 diabetes. And it's not a perfect procedure, but in a lot of cases, a patient will have can have reduced or eliminated need for insulin injection. There's a lot of nuances there I'm skipping over, but that, that does exist. And sure. this procedure that's done probably about a uh, hundred times per, per year more or, or less worldwide. Um, and, and so I think that, that, that this is um, kind of unique in uh, the cell, cell therapy space of there being a kind of a putting diabetes aside and thinking about it more generally when it comes to cell therapy, what you would use stem cells for. Um, this is pretty unique that um, there's already, you know, very strong proof of concept that this can work. So why aren't... Um, why isn't everybody receiving a, a cell therapy uh, then? And the, the very first challenge, which I've dedicated the last 10 years or so to overcoming, is the uh, problem of cell sourcing. I, I mentioned that the uh, cells currently come from deceased donors, and there just aren't that many deceased donors that are around and uh, available for providing um, replacement and uh, producing cells for, for patients. It's kind of like if you ever watch these um, medical dramas like um, uh, Chicago Hope or Grey's Anatomy or, you know, or, or whatever. And you're like, oh, we need to have a, you know, replacement heart or, or liver or kidney in the next uh, 24 or 48 hours um, or the patient's going, going to die and there isn't immediate um, organs uh, available, uh, it's that sort of thing. There just aren't that many donor organs available overall. Okay. Fortunately for, for, for diabetes, we have a, a therapy that is, is very uh, effective and can um, you know, maintain uh, people's health for, for many decades, and that, that's insulin. But um, we still have this problem of cell sourcing. And so when I was looking at options uh, out there for what we would use besides, besides uh, deceased donors, I, I felt that uh, human stem cells were the most obvious choice to, to make that occur. Uh, and, and the main reason for that is that these stem cells are capable of growing and dividing and making more of themselves virtually indefinitely. Uh, in my academic lab here, uh, which we, we are not a, like a manufacturing facility, we don't make cells for, to go into people, 
so, so we're relatively small scale versus a, a company that would actually do this. But even in my you know, relatively humble uh, laboratory, we easily make several billions of cells every single week for our own studies here. And, and that would be enough for um, you know, multiple people as, as well. So having the ability to make a virtually unlimited number of, of cells uh, as your starting material is, is a clear advantage. And most cells can't do that. You can't just like take introducing cells in the body and uh, grow them up indefinitely. They just, like, they just don't grow. So you need to have a stem cell to do that. Uh, the other advantage of these uh, stem cells is that they essentially represent a cell type that is very early during um, embryonic development. And what that means is that uh, we can if we give them the correct signals, um, basically putting in like proteins or sugars or uh, chemicals into the um, into the flask that we're keeping the, the cells in, we can direct them to transform from a stem cell into any cell found in in the body. So you give a one mixture of um, of proteins and chemicals, you can go and make heart cells. A different mixture will give you liver cells. And of course, the mixture that we, we care about quite a bit is um, insulin producing cells um, in the particular cell type uh, that produces insulin in the body is called the, uh, the beta cell. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so this, this is a unique uh, feature that isn't really replicated by any of the other um, options there. And we've been quite successful with it, I, I believe, with our uh, preclinical modeling in um, diabetic mice. Let me just interject here and make sure that people understand they're listening. When you were talking about doing a, a transplant, that then infers that the patient needs anti-rejection meds. Is that right? Right. Yeah. And that's still a pretty major problem. Right, right. And so now you're basically change, or excuse me, exchanging type 1 diabetes for possibly cancer. Is that the concept of why that's not more widely considered, do you think? Uh, so yeah, immuno, yeah, immunosuppressant drugs can have a whole host of, of side effects. I'm not quite certain if cancer is, is one of them. Okay, It's, it's possible, but the, the, the most obvious issues with that is that you're weakening a patient's immune system in order to make them so they don't um, reject the insulin-producing cells that are being transplanted into them, so they'll be more susceptible to um, infection or sepsis, for, for, for example. Yeah. And that's maybe where, um, and so that's, that's part of the reason as well why there are only uh, a few procedures done each year, because the people who are receiving um, these um, insulin-producing cells from deceased donors basically the sickest of the sickest. They have severe hypoglycemic unawareness. They've usually been hospitalized multiple times uh, because of that. Other organ failures too. Sorry? Other organ failures as well. That sometimes it's Yeah, severe effect. complications yeah. Uh, in, in addition uh, to that. Um, though, for, uh, though I think um, one of the more scary things, what I've spoken to, to patients in the past, and you probably know better about this than I do, is the, is the issues of um, you know, loss of eyesight, but also um, uh, hypoglycemic unawareness, this fear that you might just go to sleep and not wake up. Yeah. And so, um, you know, these, these are these are particular, these are the sickest of the sick when it comes to patients with type one diabetes. And so, in that case, the negative side effects of immunosuppressant drugs outweighs the um, uh, complications that they have from from their diabetes. Right, right. However, that's obviously a calculus that most 
patients with type 1 diabetes can't accept. In most cases, um, the side effects of immunosuppressant drugs is not worth it in order to have better management of their diabetes. And so this probably gets to maybe the um, third advantage of working with uh, stem cells as a cell source here is the fact that we can genetically engineer these cells uh, in order to make them better for transplantation. And kind of one of the newer areas that my lab has gotten into uh, in, recent, uh, in the recent year is um, to genetically engineer the cells so that you do not need to give the patients immunosuppressant drugs anymore. That's amazing. You basically um, change what signals the insulin-producing cells are giving to the immune system to trick the immune system into thinking the cells are should be there and are not from an actual donor. That's that's magic, Jeff. That's that's absolutely amazing to hear. It really it's. It's astonishing to hear someone say that I tell the cell to give off a signal that makes the immune. I mean, that's crazy, man. Like you're brilliant. How did you? <laughs> Thank God you're not making shampoo. <laughs> Although I bet my hair would be amazing well, if you were. Yeah, your hair would probably be great. Uh, I, I, maybe some stem cells could help you out with with that. But um, <laughs> no, I, it, it, and the analogy I get here is that you know the, the sentences I just said. You know, a few years ago were like legitimate science fiction mm-hmm. being able to to do this um in a like a, a realistic way was simply not possible even a a few years ago um, it was a, a idea people had but the technology wasn't there both on the um stem cell technology side but also the genetic engineering side in order to be able to to do that at all meaningfully and only really in the last i would say year or so have both um, the genetic engineering capabilities and the stem cell technology gotten to the point that we realize that we can do this now. It's no longer, you know, five years ago, it was definitely science fiction. I'm like, oh, that'd be nice to do. But a year ago, we realized that, oh, we can do this now and, you know, overcome one of the major challenges of a cell therapy for patients with, with diabetes. So, um, this may be one of the um, fun aspects of, of my job here um, as a, a faculty member is that, you know, we get we had the flexibility to, you know, start pushing the envelope uh, and going beyond uh, transforming things that are science fiction into something that's reality and, and hopefully eventually a therapy that can um, help the millions of people that could benefit from it. And And tell me how you go about testing this it's it's on lab mice is that correct right so um the, to, to to test out how effective our, our cells are in terms of uh, as a potential therapy we take lab mice um, we give them a um, compound that is able to uh, destroy the mouse's uh own insulin-producing cells so we give the mice diabetes by you know basically killing off their their own uh, cells, and then we um, do a transplantation um, into these mice to see you know are we able to first reverse diabetes in these mice and can, can we do it rapidly? And then the second question is how long are we able to uh, keep that uh, diabetes cure? And number three, are there any ill effects of of the transplants? Um, do they um, 
know, one of the fears is the potential of um, the cells we're putting into the mice to perhaps become a tumor. And so we go and we look for any uh, signs of tumor formation or, you know, any other sort of um, like biochemical changes in the blood chemistry of the bowels that would be indicative of major health problems. Right. And, uh, and, and re really only uh, this year um, with our recent scientific publications, have we been able to answer uh, positively to all of those questions simultaneously. The, the cells that we have now are able to virtually instantaneously uh, reverse diabetes in these mice. It takes about a, a week or so because we have the, the blood, blood vessels grow into the cells we're putting into the mice. But after that, uh, the diabetes has been reversed. The diabetes reversal lasts for the lifetime of the mice, which is about a year. And then there has been no signs of any health problems associated with um, the, the transplant. The blood chemistry looks good. And the um, there's no signs of, of tumor formation. And we've done this um, a lot of times now. I think the total number of mice that we have transplanted with our latest um, uh, version of the technology is over 100. And so far, we have a 100% success rate when it comes to curing diabetes and a 100% um, safety rating uh, when it comes to the mice we have transplanted. What's the next step after a mouse? Unless, by the way, Jeff, and I'm just thinking out loud here, what if you found a way to turn a person with diabetes into a mouse and then gave them the stem cells, <laughs> then turned them back into a person? I think really that maybe is what you should be looking into. But uh, just in case that's not possible, what do you do after you've proven it out over and over again in a lab mouse? Do you move on to a, a, a larger animal, something that's more um, closely related to people? I don't know. What's the process? Well, I think also we have to keep in mind how important the uh, diabetic mouse community is to us. And maybe they should be the priority first. I'm just kidding with you, of course. <laughs> so actually, you ask a, a very hard question. And I've actually been um, in a lot of discussions. And there have been a lot of people who um, are you know, experts in the field that give very different answers to the um, the question that you uh, just um, um, just proposed, there are um, there's an argument to be made that um, having great success with a mouse model of diabetes is sufficient, and that we shouldn't waste any more time trying to make uh, larger animals uh, work with the technology and instead should just go uh, straight into a phase one clinical trial. Hmm. And I think there's a lot of merits uh, to that. Uh, there's also an argument to be made that a large animal like a non-human primate or a pig has um, a, a physiology that is more similar to a person uh, than what a mouse is in that showing preclinical success in one of those models is a necessary uh, stepping stone um, when it comes from going to where we're at right now with great um, um, cure rates in mice before we put it into a person. Um, and, and so I, I personally am, am kind of um, stuck between these two um, positions. And I think a lot of it depends on sort of your, um, on your, um, 
what you're trying to get out of this. I, I think as maybe a, uh, for, if I put on my um, academic hat, um, I think it's a lot of value um, for going into the larger animal models. So we could do a, a lot more uh, testing and a lot more um, invasive work um, when it comes to uh, large animals. And I apologize for the siren in, in the background. I'm actually at the medical school right now. I was going to say, right you, might get, the, uh, you might get more work the, done if you moved out of that firehouse, I think. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, 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 the Dalmatians are very nice to keep up uh, lab morale. Maybe you can say, give them so. diabetes and then see if you can fix it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, well, well there, so you're in between. You're not. I'm in between. What what stops? So is it biases? Is it people who are just like, look, I want to move on this. I think it works. Or is there real scientific reasoning for both of the ideas? Maybe we should try another animal larger. Maybe we should jump to a person. Like, what are the arguments for each? Do you have you heard them? So the arguments um, for going into a person is that um, there is um, that w mice are as good as a large animal in terms of guaranteeing the safety of a person. In, in fact, um, there's an argument he made that mice are a better safety model um, for um, um, th than what a pig or a non-human primate is um, because of some of the uh, special genetic mice that we have, they allow for um, health issues um, to be easier to detect than what you would see inside of a large animal. So the argument for going to people would be that mice are as good, if not better than, than large animals to ensure safety of a person. And so if we already have all the data proving the safety of the, the product before going into a person, we might as well go into a person to, you know, number one, um, help to accelerate um, transition to uh, uh, translation of this over to a, a cure. And, and number two, the, um, uh, the effectiveness of the treatment in a person is going to be more meaningful than the effectiveness of a treatment in any animal model, because obviously um, we care about how it works in a person uh, a lot more than we care about a monkey or a pig or a mouse or a Dalmatian. Um, so that's the argument for doing it. Um, the um, argument for doing it um, in a um, large animal is that we can, you know, do, we, we don't have to go through as much regulatory hurdles basically to go and get answers in terms of effectiveness inside uh, once transplanted into a large animal model. There isn't a, you know, FDA, well, FDA clinical trials when it comes to large animals. There are regulations for it. We can't go about it uh, willy-nilly and there's ethics to consider, but those, you know, those are similar to what we already do with, with the mice. And so we'd be able to, um, if we decided to do um, large animal work today, we would probably be able to, um, if, and assuming we didn't have the program going right now, uh, we would be able to realistically do this in probably two or three months. As opposed to if we decided we wanted to go into a person today, assuming the FDA didn't require the large animal intermediate, and I don't know the answer to that um, uh, right now, um, it would probably take two years to go into a, a person. Well, I have questions around this because I'm always fascinated that as people, we see things as either or it's always one or the other. Why not mm. both? Why not move forward on both of them at the same time and then abandon the one that 
that doesn't end up being needed. Like, and, and are there any, um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but th- does the FDA ever make allowances for people in situations that are dire? And couldn't you find a person in their 60s who's had type 1 diabetes their whole life who who is really at the end of their health rope and just say, this is this is reasonable to try with them? Do you know what I mean? Like, when does common sense jump into this? Right. And I think... Um the way you um, phrased the question at, at the beginning, it, it kind of matches what I, uh, the way that I view this, uh, is maybe the flexibility of being a academic working in this space, um, that I um, try to do what I can in order to, um, you know, in terms of like, developing new technologies and, and giving advice to people um, to um, help uh, companies go into clinical trials as fast as possible. Um, but in the meantime, you know, we do our own academic research here, and I'm not doing academic research on, on people. And so we have uh, already done some uh, large animal transplantations as part of our um, uh, academic mission here. So essentially kind of in terms of like me personally, when it comes to being in, in, in the field, um, you know, I'm kind of able to play both sides, if you will, without sure. having a academic program that uses uh, large animal models of, of diabetes, uh, while also trying to help companies that may be wanting to um, bypass that and go into a, a clinical trial. However, when it comes to you know a, a individual companies' um, uh, perspective, and I don't want I'm not speaking for anybody in particular, but just kind of thinking about the types of questions a company would want to ask themselves, they would need to make the decision um, on you know if um, you know they want to you know, spend uh, finite resources um, on large animal models or on clinical trials or try to split it across both. And they may face the reality that they don't have the resources to do both and, you know, may need to go and choose um, one over the other. So that's maybe the the, um, argument for not doing everything is if you don't have the finances to do it or the ability to do it, um, you got to go down the the only option that that you have um, available um, to you. So you, you made reference to um, kind of a, an emergency clearance type of yeah. um, uh, decree. I don't know what the exact uh, terminology is for it um, from, from, from the FDA. Um, and, and this is, uh, it's been happening a lot when it comes to like uh, COVID-19 testing. I, I know a lot of these um, diagnostic kits have been receiving like emergency clearance from the FDA uh, since we're in the middle of a global pandemic that is uh, killing um, hundreds of uh, thousands of people um, this year uh, alone. And, and diabetes, for the most part, doesn't really uh, fit um, in terms of um, in terms of, of that there being a good pal- parallel there. Because um, overall, the FDA, again, as I, as I understand it, I'm not a, I, don't, I don't represent the FDA or anything, but as I understand it, the um, you know, FDA is wanting to, to balance risk here. And if you have a, uh, a new therapy that you're wanting to do uh, a trial for or get an emergency approval for, um, what is the alternative there? What's the relative risk and, and reward there? And since um, uh, diabetes is, um, um, you know, it is controlled to at least a certain degree uh, by insulin or insulin sensitizers, um, the oftentimes there isn't a... I could imagine the FDA uh, looking at that and thinking that there is not a 
justification for a kind of an emergency clearance or emergency clinical trials when it comes to a SL therapy. Yeah. With that said, there could be maybe some subpopulations of of patients for which um, that could be an argument for. I I could imagine. I'm just kind of spitballing here uh, a a little bit, but there are uh, kind of going outside of type one diabetes. There are um, um, certain uh, rare uh, genetic forms of, of diabetes, the so-called like MODIs or neonatal diabetes or Wolfram syndrome or uh, fibrosis-induced diabetes, uh, that maybe um, some of those cases could fall into, into that. That'd be one possibility going forward with it. Right. Yeah, just that, that some somewhere the imperative lies that it's worth the risk in taking the leap. And by, and by the way, like I, I'm obviously not a historian on this, but don't most of our major advancements fit into a mold like that? Like just something that had to be done and we did it and it works. So we kept going. I'm I'm not a medical historian as well. So I don't know if I can really uh, speak about that. It just makes sense. Listen, maybe I'm writing science fiction too, but it just makes sense that, you know, there's somebody out there who's in a dire enough situation that be like, Hey, give me the mouse thing and let me see what happens. And if it doesn't go well, it doesn't go well, but I didn't have much to lose to begin with. And, Mm. you know, you just would think that was, I don't know, Jeff, maybe we, uh, let prisoners with type one out for doing it. You know, there's gotta be a way is what I'm saying. There's gotta be somebody who would be willing to like make, take the risk because the risk would be reasonable for them. Uh, well, you, you mentioned the prisoner thing. I don't, I don't know if you're uh, aware. Uh, I'm not a medical historian, but I do know a little bit when it comes to uh, prisoners, when it comes to uh, like what we call human subjects uh, research, there's actually been a, a bit of a issue um, in, in the past in this country on um, kind of compelling prisoners to uh, in- engage in human subjects uh, research. I don't know they're just the proper clinical trials, but there's actually a lot of, it becomes an issue of like having the ability to um, properly consent to things. Um, and if you're a prisoner you and you're given, you're, you're, you're kind of, um, maybe can feel compelled to do things that are against your self-interest because of the um, imbalanced power dynamic. And so actually, um, if you want to do um, any um, research with human subjects um, and you want to do it with with prisoners, there's actually a lot of additional um, regulations involved in in doing that um, because of the um, uh, inherent uh, disproportionate power dynamic that occurs when you're uh, dealing w- w- with a prisoner yeah. to the point that I don't think there actually is much work if any done with prisoners um, because of what's happened in the past. It's it's funny. I was just reaching in my mind for someone who would be in a dire enough situation. Like I wasn't saying to like knock three months off of a larceny oh. run. I was talking, you know, I was <laughs> talking more about like, I'm going to spend my life in prison. Maybe I would take a risk with that life to, to get it out. And meanwhile, I completely understand what you just said and all the other parts of that, that, that seem untenable. I really, I, I could have just as easily reached for any other, you know, example out of my head. I wasn't like, you know, we have those prisoners, we should use them. That's not what I was. That's not, but I think I, I'm glad you brought it up though, because, yeah. um, I, um, I, I, sp- I spent a lot of time, um, speaking to, um, uh, audiences of uh, patients with di- diabetes and, and their families. And I, I know that there is a uh, frustration that um, 
exists uh, when it comes to the um, uh, perceived slow pace of uh, scientific discovery and that actually uh, being translated into a um, into an actual uh, therapy that benefits themselves or a, a loved one and oftentimes gets um, very um, direct questions about like why is this true like you can already do some amazing stuff with, with mice like why aren't we just putting it into uh, people right now and it's a very um, reasonable question and the, the frustration behind the question I think is very reasonable but I, I think um, the like the, the prisoner thing is, is an example of the types of considerations that we have want to keep in mind that the path from a having very good, preclinical animal model evidence of a new uh, treatment or functional care for, for diabetes is just the beginning. And to go from where we are, we're at right now with academic research into a therapy um, that can benefit yourself or, or a loved one, loved one is um, a long path that has to be treaded very, very carefully. Um, you know, the, the, the prisoner thing kind of illustrates just one of the um, ethical um, dilemmas that, that could occur, yeah. um, you know, issues of, um, you know, the large animal model uh, that we talked about several minutes ago is another one as well. Like, is that re required or not? And people who are experts in, in the field, um, you know, disagree on, on that um, on that one issue. So I think all the points we've been bringing up here, uh, I think very clearly illustrates that it's not a straight and easy and direct line going from where we are to where we want to be, that there is, you know, a, a lot of care that needs to be taken in order to, to do this correctly. Um, otherwise, we're going to end up, um, you know, taking even longer um, to translate this care to help people um, in the long term, and, you know, could potentially hurt some people along the way if we're not very careful in how we're doing this. And yeah. we, uh, we don't want to, um, we don't want for, for that to, to occur. And to give you maybe an example of, of that, um, this is pretty, a pretty another, again, I'm not a medical historian, but I do know a, a little bit of things that are kind of the more famous um, uh, kind of uh, case studies uh, that, that are out there. So in the 90s, there was a lot of um, hope and hype for gene therapy to um, cure a lot of diseases. We were getting uh, better at genetic engineering uh, technologies at the time. Um, of course, now we're a lot better, but the 90s is really where a lot of the stuff started to happen. And so there was a clinical trial started um, to uh, do gene therapy for children with um, uh, a, a severe genetic uh, immune deficiency. The, the, you might have heard like bubble boy um, type of terminology. Yeah. These people have uh, mutations, a mutation that um, basically gives them little to no immune system. So there's clinical trials that happened in the late 90s uh, in order to um, uh, in order to uh, treat uh, the, these patients. And one of the uh, patients, um, a young boy, um, actually died from the treatments. And so what happened, that's very unfortunate, very tragic. Um, and what happened to the field is that basically um, all work with uh, clinical trials with gene therapy stopped and nobody was willing to pursue gene therapy for, in people for about two decades. And only now have things kind of warmed up to begin doing this again. 
Um, and fortunately, it seems to be a lot. Uh, people are trading a lot more carefully and are um, and are you know doing a lot better. Again, the technology has improved a whole lot, and gene therapy. Uh, the way we do it now is um, a light year ahead of where things were in in, in the 90s. Right. Um, so and so so I think this is a, a cautionary tell that right. um, if we do this wrong, we can end up you know hurting people and then delaying progress to a cure potentially for decades. Because because the, the academia side will run away from it because it's like it's scary and it went wrong and you don't want to be attached to it at that point Correct. yeah yeah i see so there's that human so it's just a myriad of things to consider and some of them have the potential to significantly waylay progress and and so you want to be careful moving forward and do it in a meaningful way i you know i i don't I, listen i'm not a person who thinks that you've got the answer over there on your desk and you're just not giving it to us i i don't have that feeling but a lot of people do get that idea of like well there's more money in the treatment than there is in a, you know, in this, but this is not a cure either. This would be a, uh, you know, this would be a, a treatment that would go on. You, you don't honestly know if you would need more cells as a, as a human life move forward at this point. So yeah, the, the timing issue is, is one of the big scientific questions right now. And this is maybe where the large animals actually have a benefit here um, that we are limited by the lifespan of the mice that we're using currently uh, in, in our studies, and, and that's about a year. And so we know for, for a year, for the lifetime of the mice, um, the cells seem to function perfectly fine um, until the mouse is, um, uh, dies due to old age. Um, and so we don't know if that means that at like one year, one day, in, in a person, all of a sudden, the, um, the transplant doesn't work anymore, and then the patient would need um, a, a dosing, or if those are going to last for years and years and years or decades or for the lifetime of the actual uh, patient. Right. It, it's, but I do think that even kind of in the worst case scenario here, if the cells um, end up um, only uh, working for a year or, or so, which I, I, I just intuitively, I think that's not going to be the case, but assuming that it's true, um, I, I suspect that many people would choose a um, dosage of cells every year or so over what they have to do um, every single day. Again, I, I, I'm not, um, I, I'm coming from this from an outsider's perspective. I am uh, not uh, diabetic and I, I don't have um, any family members who are, are, are diabetic at, at, as well, but I spend a lot of time because I think it's very important to you know, keep the eye on, on the prize here. So I spend a lot of time speaking with uh, patients to understand their stories and their motivations there so that I have that in mind while I'm conducting my academic research here. Yeah. And, and from, 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 from my discussions with everybody, and again, I think you, you know this a lot better than I do, um, that I think that most people would um, accept a once a year treatment over what they have to do right now. Well, yeah, I, I think for my daughter, I would definitely want that. And I believe she would too, as I'm speaking for, but and what, what are we talking about? Do you, do you know how we're talking about the implantation? Is it just a large needle like thing? How do you, how would you get the cells where they need to go? I, um, I guess how does that, it work with the mice? That's another question. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the way we currently do it in mice is not the way that we would do it in people. One of the problems with, with mice is that everything is itty bitty and, and we don't necessarily have like 
cutting edge microsurgery equipment in, in my lab. Mm-hmm. Literally, it's like me sitting there with the mic. So I still do the surgeries for, for my labs. Like the only real thing that I, at me as the um, uh, director of the lab, I still so actually doing the lab. Um, but you know, it's, it's literally me over a mouse um, uh, putting the cells in, into the mouse. And so we actually uh, currently in the mice uh, transplant them um, into the kidney. Um, because for, for, for practical reasons, not for translation reasons, um, but for, for people, um, we would need to figure out the best location to do this. Um, and the complication, um, there is, um, is, uh, basically the amount of blood that is available. Um, one of the great things about ins producing cells is that they don't actually need to be in the pancreas or native organ in order to do their job. Um, if they have enough blood flow, they're able to um, sense the sugar levels in the blood and deliver um, insulin into the bloodstream. So that's the only real requirement there. Uh, but not every area in your body has the same amount of uh, blood available for the um, insulin producing cells to do, do their job. And so a lot of people are hoping just to be able to um, put the um, cells just underneath the skin uh, or maybe into a, a muscle. So be kind of a needle injection type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that's looking promising now. Um, it's kind of hard to do that um, just with like naked cells into the uh, into the spaces uh, because of the relatively low density of uh, blood vessels there. Uh, but there's been a lot of work done with uh, various types of biomaterials that can help to promote um, an increase in blood vessel formation there in order to enable, uh, so you basically kind of create like a little pocket underneath your skin or in your muscle uh, that is supportive of um, of the um, insulin producing cells to do their job by providing them with enough, um, enough uh, insulin. Alternatively, you could put them into a different organ. Um, people don't want to do it in the kidney because of a lot of uh, people with diabetes having uh, kidney issues. So what's actually done clinically right now is to inject them into the liver. Uh, so that is highly vascularized um, a- as an organ. And also most of the um, work that insulin does in your body actually occurs in the liver. And so having the insulin be delivered directly into the liver um, is, is good from a physiology perspective. That's really incredibly interesting. I'm having a lot of fun talking to you about stuff that I thought I wasn't going to understand, but I am understanding. I I, the, I, want you to know that over the years, I have many opportunities to talk to people who are in similar positions to yours, but I never felt like what they were doing had a real chance. And And you talked earlier about how things have sped up so much recently, and I just wondered if we could detour for a half a second what made that leap? Is it is it like the advent of supercomputers? Are there like how did you how did we speed up like this? I wish we could figure this out with supercomputers because that'd probably be a lot less um, work and a lot less pipetting on my my teams in in order to to do this. Um, so so really the 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 watershed moment here um, occurred um, actually before I um, became a. Um, faculty member here at WashU. So after I got my PhD from MIT, I, um, and I decided I wanted to do diabetes research, I actually um, uh, did a, uh, what's called a uh, postdoctoral um, um, fellowship 
which is basically your time between getting your PhD and becoming a uh, faculty member. So I actually did that down the street um, uh, from MIT at uh, Harvard University in a um, uh, famous uh, diabetes uh, lab over, over there. And so the, the task that I had during that period of time was to figure out how to make these cells. Basically, when I started doing uh, my fellowship, I, um, the field didn't actually know how to produce these cells at all. We knew how to make progenitor cells. So these were cells that were kind of halfway uh, between a stem cell and a inspiring cell, mm -hmm. but we didn't know actually the correct um, proteins and chemicals uh, to um, to put into our flask in order to make them go all the way into a insulin producing cells. So if people had tried to do what you just suggested with um, supercomputers or a kind of con computational methods in order to do that. And the, the truth of the matter is we don't understand biology enough in order for these what we call in silico methods to be able to be very productive, predictive of um, approaches to making it. So I, I was tasked with basically trying to figure out how to get over this problem that had existed for the 20 years that stem cells had been, um, uh, since they, stem cells had been invented 20 years prior to this, uh, and we hadn't been able to figure out how to make these cells um, during that time period. And so essentially the trick was to read a lot of papers uh, that were describing how this occurs um, naturally in embryos. So this is mostly like, how do you get cells in fruit flies or fish or mice? Since those are the, uh, what we call model organisms that we use to try to understand how a embryo develops, uh, develops naturally. Um, to go and look at what lessons people had learned from studying these animals and then trying to translate them over to our human stem cell bioreactor context. And so I literally went through, I did a, I did a estimation after the fact, it was about a 180 papers and found that only about two or three of the um, uh, papers actually um, provided chemicals and proteins that we could put onto uh, our cells in order to actually make them. Basically, it was a matter of going through the literature, finding papers that were irrelevant uh, to actually making the cells in our artificial lab-grown context, um, and find the few that were actually relevant and to kind of make these what I call first-generation cells. So we were able to take these few papers, um, figure out the compounds from it, and be the first to make inspiring uh, cells that were capable of controlling diabetes in, in mice. And once we were able to know that it was, first of all, possible with existing technology um, and, and, and knew some of the specific compounds for, for how to do that, it became a question of being the first to do it to taking these cells that were very immature still, but um, were definitely the, the correct cell types that we wanted to make there and optimize. And hmm. so that's optimization is taking something and making it better is infinitely easier than going from nothing to being the first to create something. Yeah. And so that's really the watershed moment that we went from not being able to do this for 20 years to then over the course of uh, then figuring out how to do um, the first generation of this. 
and then go for the next five years after that into a um, improved cell product that is now able to reverse diabetes and be safe and all these great things that we talked about earlier. I want to understand the timeline. You reading that literature and coming to that that idea, how long ago was that? Um, so I started in 2011 um, doing this, and we pretty much had figured it out by 2013, and we published the uh, scientific report uh, on that in 2014. Mm-hmm. And one day when so, this becomes a thing, we're going to call it the Millman Method. Is that correct? We're going to get your name right <laughs> well, on there, it. Well, there, there, there's, there's a reason I keep on using the, the word uh, we in, in know, a lot of this. Is is that, uh, this is all teams, t- t- <laughs> team science, right? It's like nowadays science is so big and so hard that it is really difficult for an individual to be the, the one to, to come up with something that's truly transformative and moves the field forward. And that's impossible. But uh, more often than not, you are better uh, off uh, working with teams and and with groups. And and now, of course, I lead a a, a team of 10 scientists here at WashU. Um, And so everything that I'm involved in obviously involves other people on my team and oftentimes other people at other um, institutions as well. And so I I really think that um, team science is, is the way to go forward here because uh, it's not going to be one person. This is, this is a problem that is too important to expect a individual person to solve. We all need to be working together in order to, to do this. And mm-hmm. everybody that I work with on this all share the same um, vision that we're all in this together for the greater good of coming up with a therapy. And, and we're seeing this with COVID right now too, right? Aren't labs sharing information at a at just an unprecedented rate now around COVID? Yeah, it's, it's something that I, I, I have never seen um, to, to, to that um, extent before in, in my professional uh, career um, that, you know, we have these groups that, you know, we're never working together, um, all of a sudden starting to, to work together to, to solve this very important problem of how to deal with uh, COVID-19 and its complications. And I think part of this as well is kind of where we're at now um, in terms of the ease of communication and the ease of disseminating information. Um, there's a, a lot of, um, I mean, this has been a lot because of, of, of how much the internet has advanced even in the last 10 years, but uh, in, in particular, um, uh, it's become kind of um, a, a trend in the last maybe like three years or so, at least on, on my radar, I know it existed before this, um, is what we call preprint servers. So uh, normally when you um, publish uh, a scientific article, you uh, write it up, you have to, and you submit it to a journal, um, and then there's an editor assigned to it. The editor goes through it to kind of make sure it's not completely wacko, um, and then um, it goes through a, a process called peer review, where it's sent out to usually three other scientists in your field, uh, your peers, and they go and they uh, critique it, um, and they recommend that it's either published as is, has to be revised, or is rejected. And this is a process that um, maybe on average can take between six months and eight months, but it's not uncommon for it to take over a year before it's actually published and out there for the scientific field to go and benefit from. However, um, there have been um, what what are called preprint servers um, that have been developed where um, before you submit it 
to peer review, like I discussed, you would do an additional step before that. You, you submit the article to a preprint server. It still gets a quick look, look over from an editor to make sure that it's not um, something you know crazy or inappropriate. Um, but then within 24 hours of being um, submitted, it is all mine and available for everybody to look at. Again, it's not peer reviewed yet, as this disclaimer for it, but the, these preprint servers have been uh, amazing in order to not have this six month, eight month, one year lag in information being disseminated. Um, and the information is out in 24 hours after uh, being uh, submitted. And obviously that's very important when you're facing a immediate healthcare crisis of a, a pandemic. Do you think that generationally that that researchers have moved along with society thinking bigger picture? Do you see that as well? Because, I mean, listen, if I was going to cure something, I can see I'm 50 years old. I can see me thinking, I want my name on this. I want people to know I cured this. I can also see how when we get to COVID, everyone in a lab all over the country and the world are starting to think, well, hell, I could get this too. So I guess maybe we ought to get to work on this. And, you know, like I can see that kind of breaking the levy of me maybe not caring so much about who gets the credit, but more caring that there's a way to treat. And, and I do, but I do wonder, like I look at the, like my, my son's 20, uh, he doesn't have type one, but you know, I look at his generation and I listen to he, him speak with friends and it all just feels a little more um, inclusive when they're talking. Mm -hmm. And I, I do wonder too, if that isn't a little bit of, if maybe credit's not the most important thing, although, you know, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I'm wondering if things aren't just shifting in general, but what you said about the internet and communication improving is huge. I don't think people think of the internet as as all that it really is. You know, I, I think they think of it as making their Xbox work or, you know, being able to send an email. But but this, it's really fascinating, Jeff. I, I'm thrilled you came on. Um, can, can well, let me ask you the question first. Do you think that there's a that the community, the scientific community, is moving along with maybe the social world? I think there's definitely parallels there, um, and I definitely would say overall. Uh, younger and newer faculty tend to use the uh, like the preprint servers and the early uh, rapid dissemination of information more than uh, senior investigators. I'm not certain how much of that is kind of a different inherent kind of technological aptitudes of um, yeah. younger people and, and older people overall, um, or you know if there's maybe a mentality when it comes to, to credits. Um, but but there, I guess that is maybe a, an important thing to, to acknowledge that um, one of the things that uh, scientists uh, like myself um, have to, to balance is that, you know, we, we all come into it with kind of altru altruistic views of wanting to, to benefit, um, you know, people. And in this case, you know, people with, uh, with diabetes is something that's very, very important to me. So we come up with these altruistic views. Um, but there is a kind of a reality that a scientist needs to, to face of, you know, being able to have a career and, and maintain a, a laboratory. Um, we, uh, you know, we all have to compete. This all, it all comes down to money, essentially, mm -hmm. but not like not like money that we're taking home to, to uh, in, our, in our bank accounts, but like money in order to actually do the work. All scientists, diabetes re uh, researchers and all the researchers were all competing for a finite amount of um, of uh, research funding that that is out there, and, and thankfully we have um, 
foundation support from, you know, like JDRF and American Diabetes Association to, to allow for there to be more money uh, focused on um, uh, diabetes than there would be um, otherwise if we're just relying on federal money like the uh, from the National Institutes of, of Health. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it, it is all still finite. And in the end, you still have to, as a scientist, um, you know, compete for these grants and publish papers of uh, sufficient renown in order to um, motivate um, a uh, foundation or government agency to, to give you the, the funding there. So it's, it's a balance that we have to, to strike um, because we want to do good, um, but we also need to ensure that we ha- are competitive for the money in order, order for us to do um, the good that we are um, you know, um, striving to, to accomplish. And so when I talk to my trainees in my laboratory about this, I oftentimes will uh, purposely point out that I am thinking about um, the discussion one way or another. I'm like, okay, we're thinking about, we're talking about this right now in terms of um, what is the best stuff we can be doing in order to uh, lessen human suffering or improve patient health. And then, or our switch and be like, okay, this is stuff we need to do in order to ensure that we have funding for the next five years. Mm -hmm. And the way we approach questions um, uh, or the steps we might take are, can be different depending on uh, what is kind of the immediate concern there. And so in the end, we, we, we as scientists have, have to balance all, all of this, and it's a juggling act um, that different scientists, perhaps of different generations, uh, will come to different answers to. Well, you, I'll tell you what you just said is not lost on me at all, because this podcast, I know you don't know it, but this podcast helps people, a lot of people, understand how to manage their insulin, which brings their time and range uh, tighter, brings their A1Cs down, gives them better health outcomes. And it's a full-time job making this podcast. So I take ads on the podcast. And there are some people who think you shouldn't take ads. But to them, I would say, if I didn't have an ad, then I'd have a different job and you wouldn't have this podcast. So, you know, at some point you have to, you know, you have to, you got to, you got to eat, right? I'm, you're not you're not rolling around St. Louis in a Lambo, I don't imagine, Jeff. <laughs> right? <laughs> when you say no. when you say you need that money, you need it for equipment, lab space, materials, and quality people, right? Like I imagine someone Correct. who knows what they're doing costs more than someone who doesn't know what they're doing. R- right, yeah. And, yeah. Um, and that's a good, good, maybe a good distinction to make there. Like when. Like when my, my lab gets a, a research grant from JDRF or ADA or NIH or, or whatever, I personally don't get like a raise or anything. Like I don't take home. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a salary. I have a set salary. Um, and that set salary is um, there no matter um, if I am doing a good job in terms of curing diabetes or doing a bad job when it comes to curing diabetes, or mm-hmm. if I bring in big grants, or I'm not bringing in big, big grants, the amount of money I take home is the same. Unchanged. So I actually don't receive any of the money personally. But right. you're right, the money, the money all goes to supplies and equipment, and the salaries in order to hire people or to train people in my lab in my laboratory. Um, and, and that's very important as well, that part of my, my mission here is, you know, not just to be, um, you know, coming up with a functional cure for diabetes, uh, but also to be training the next generation of scientists. And so I have undergraduate researchers come to my lab, um, and uh, some of them need, uh, have financial aid requirements um, in order to be attending WashU in the first place. And so I have to pay a portion of, of that in order to 
have the, let them have the um, uh, privilege of being able to do diabetes research. Same thing with uh, PhD students. I have to pay their stipend and their tuition and also postdoctoral fellows as well. And these are all people that uh, I'm training that are doing the work, but I'm hoping are going to be trained to then, you know, go on in either companies or in their own uh, academic labs to continue the fight for a, a cure for diabetes. Yeah. And the, they, but they, but they need to, if they don't get a salary to be able to do it, then they're going to go and do other things like scientists or go work on a different disease area. And I'm rather than work on diabetes with me, then go and, you know, make shampoo at uh, Johnson and Johnson. Um, like, like I was thinking about doing for, for a while or, you know, go and work on a different disease area. No, no, no offense to the other disease areas, but my focus is diabetes. And so I'm going to, compete in order to do the, do, do the best I can in terms of research and in terms of training in order to um, advance that as much as possible. I, I, that really speaks to me, what you said. Honestly, I, you need quality people who, who want to do it. And I, I loved your answer because I want people to hear that. I honestly want people to know that you're, a, listen, in my estimation, you're a brilliant guy who could be doing other things. You could be rolling around a lab working on conditioner, wearing $200 shoes and driving a, you know, a fat car and, and living a completely different life. But you're putting your ability to think through these ideas into something as important as diabetes. And, and I appreciate that. I, I hope other people do as well. Um, I have a couple of quick questions and I'll let you out of here. I know we're over time a little bit. Um, does this have any application, what you're working on to type two? Yeah, the, the type two situation is a little bit more complicated than type one, um, but the, the short answer is yes. The, the type two top population is more heterogeneous, and there are definitely um, many pe people, maybe even most people with type two diabetes, that probably wouldn't benefit from from this because their diabetes is already managed sufficiently with diet and exercise mm -hmm. or uh, with these other, um, you know, drugs like the um, insulin sensitizing drugs. However, I think that in my discussion with endocrinologists uh, backs this up as well, uh, that the more severe type two uh, diabetic patients, the ones who are taking insulin like uh, patients with type one diabetes uh, do as well, they uh, would be able to benefit from it since you can think about these cells as essentially a insulin production source. Um, and if the patients need insulin, then it can become from the cells instead of from the insulin injection. The complication there, uh, which makes it a little bit, maybe a little bit more challenging than in the type 1 diabetes case, is that most patients with type 2 diabetes have what's called insulin resistance. And so they, per kilogram of uh, or pound of body weight, they require a larger dose of insulin in order to maintain uh, normal blood sugar levels. And so what that would translate over to is that you would need to transplant even more cells into a typical patient with type 2 diabetes than the typical patient with type 1 diabetes. But that is a technical hurdle that could be overcome, again, because of the uh, positive features of stem cells in terms of being a self-renewing cell source that, you know, we can go and make a few billion cells for them as opposed to maybe 1 billion cells mm -hmm. that a, a patient with type 1 diabetes would need. Okay. I see. 
All right. Uh, my last two questions are, this one seems kind of outlandish, but are there, like you taught a cell how to sense glucose and make insulin. What else could you teach it to do? Can it make me taller or like what else? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, where's this headed? Well, so um, I guess the, the, the way to think about it is that we are only teaching the cells what evolution already taught the cells. Okay. Basically, we're not t- telling them to do anything that is artificial. All we're doing is trying to give them the signals they would normally get in the developing embryo that would tell them to become a beta cell or its producing cell. All, all we're doing is trying to copy that inside of the laboratory. And so evolution already figured all this stuff out for us. And all we're doing is trying to copy evolution's work in the laboratory. And so that means that we, unless we do some sort of exotic genetic engineering tricks, which is possible, I guess, but at least with how we're making the insulin-producing cells, that means that we can't tell the cells, instruct the cells to do anything that they wouldn't naturally be able to do in, in the body. But with that said, I mean, maybe you can give them a growth hormone artificially to go and make you grow taller and produce insulin, but you're probably uh, better off uh, not doing that. Yeah, I was hoping you could fix my plantar fasciitis, actually. Uh, or or I could dunk, one or the other. I wasn't sure what I was going for exactly there. <laughs> but, but I just wanted to understand, you know, it, and that's a really great explanation of it, that you can just do what what nature knows how to do. And that's, that's really is probably um, comforting to be perfectly honest. My, my, uh, my professional advice for you would be uh, to just get uh, shoes with like uh, platform shoes or like get a springboard in order to go and dunk. It's probably gonna be much more uh, economical for you than trying to use a cell therapy for it. Well, Jeff, I was going to tell you, you could come back on the show whenever you wanted if I could jump higher, but now you're, you're making me rethink my offer. Oh, I don't know. (laughs) Uh, well, so two things, and so I don't forget to say it. Whenever you were terrific, and I really enjoyed this. So if you ever have anything else you want to say, carte blanche, you just let me know. And I guess my last question is then timelines. Like, what are your what are your hopes for this? Yeah, I um, you can imagine I, I dislike the timeline question because of course you do. I, I, <laughs> because I, I don't them. want to be healthy or anything, but also because it's, it's very difficult to predict timelines when it comes to any clinical work, um, let alone kind of a, a, a major novel clinical treatments like a cell replacement therapy for, for, for diabetes. I am uh, hopeful that in the next few years, we, there would be clinical trials that are that could be initiated, and, and we have been in, in discussions with a lot of uh, partners in order to to make that happen. And that does seem to be very realistic. So I, I feel pretty good about in the next few years, clinical trials could begin. However, I think um, the the bigger question, which is a lot harder to answer, is when is this going to be a widespread treatments that uh, the average person with diabetes 
could have uh, made available for them. And, and that's simply impossible to, to know the answer to it. I've been doing this a long time. I'm not naive enough to ask you that question. <laughs> I was just wondering what you were hoping your next steps were. So what, what gets you to those clinical trials? Is it money? Money. Yeah. yeah. It, it comes out all to money. Um, and that's, um, both in terms of, uh, you know, advancing um, our, our technology, but also just doing the necessary steps to translate our kind of, you want to call it a research grade process into an actual clinical grade process. And it all comes down to, to dollars and cents there. Is it better? It's, I'm sorry, is this better off in academia or would it be better off privatized? What if somebody came along and bought it? Would the fear be then that they might not follow through the same way and they'd want to bastardize it for something else? Or like what gets it done more quickly i think that there are viable paths with either direction um and kind of the, the fear that you mentioned when it came to kind of a company involvement um that it, there are protections that can be put into place to make sure uh that a company doesn't like swoop up the patents and then sits on them to prevent a cure from actually um is helping that, people jeff is so that there are, is that I don't mean to cut you off, but is that light bulb story true? You ever heard that that a uh, hundred years ago a guy designed a light bulb that would never burn out, and a light bulb company called him in, bought his patent from him, burned everything he brought, and broke all the light bulbs right in front of him. Have you ever heard uh, that? I, I I have heard that. I have no idea if it's actually um, true or, or yeah. not. Yeah. Um, but and I, I think we uh, I think the um, the, the, the people who manage um, uh, like technology portfolios um, are a lot more uh, savvy than they are a hundred years ago. Yeah. And I guess one of the aspects that we haven't talked about when it comes to, to my research here is that in addition to the, the, the core technical team that we have here, uh, Washington University also has uh, an extensive um, technology management office here and their job is to, to worry about these sorts of things to, to make sure because obviously i'm not a patent attorney or a lawyer to be able to file patent inventions or to figure out licensing deals with with companies or, or, or other entities um I, I don't know how to do that stuff and so uh washu and this is pretty true for other uh, major research universities as well um have a office that is dedicated to that um, in order to protect the interests of the university uh, but also the interests of the technology. And so this kind of relates to um, the protections that are put into place to make sure that somebody doesn't go and buy the patent for your light bulb and then destroy everything um, and make it so it's not uh, available for people. You could write, you write in, into these contracts essentially that the person who licenses or buys the patent has to proceed with commercialization. And there are very strict um, uh, deliverables that a um, licensee has to do in order to continue having the rights to patent. If they do what you said, which is to sit on the um, patents, then they're in violation of the agreement and the patent reverts back to WashU, in, in this case, to um, or, or, the, or the university, whoever holds the, the patent rights originally. And then we're able to go and um, you know, find a partner who is not going to um, play these uh, these silly games. Yeah, I guess it's possible, but there are ways of of protecting um, yourself and also protecting the interests of of patients. And so this, 
idea that um, that uh, companies are out there and would never allow for uh, never allow for a cure for diabetes to to come because they make so much money off of insulin just uh, isn't true. There there isn't any real basis in in reality for it. Um, And in fact, I would say that overall, the the companies that that I'm aware of in in the space all view this as being the, the future and all have at least a small internal program, if not a large program, to make sure they end up not following the the, the lesson of like a of a Kodak, for for example, who were the ones who um, discovered digital photography, and they <laughs> just decided not to pursue it because their film um, industry um, business was making so much money. But then other people developed uh, digital photography, and t- Kodak got left in the dust because it was a Kodak a Polaroid. Sorry, I forget which one. Right. Um, but the, the the film one. So I think that's actually probably the. Um, the more relevant analogy here okay. than the um, than the um, uh, light bulb analogy that these companies make money from from insulin and that's true and you can make an arguments that they make too much money from, from insulin as, as well but they all believe that the future is cell therapy and they don't want to be like uh, Polaroid or, or Kodak whichever, whichever company it was <laughs> to you know be out of the diabetes um, business because they didn't. Um, adjust your business model with, with the times. Well, people are still going to be diagnosed and they're still going to need this treatment and they'll just find a way to bill this treatment to cover the cost they lost on something else. So it's, it, it, I believe that totally. I, and I think that, like you said, the people are smart enough to see that there are other applications and you want to be involved. So what are we looking for here? Do we need like Beyonce type money to start getting interested in diabetes or do we need Elon Musk or what level of wealth do we need to get interested in type one for this to move forward? You know what I'm saying? Like it's not just like, you know, not like a B level actor. We need something else, right? (laughs) Who do you need? Who's your, who's your dream guy who like wakes up one day and is like, I care about type one diabetes all of a sudden. I, uh, I don't know that I have a good answer to that. I think that's going to be a little bit beyond beyond my pay grade. Right, I'm going uh, Elon forward. Musk. But, uh, <laughs> so e- Elon Musk, um, you know, going and um, you know, sending, uh, being the first private company uh, to to send astronauts in, in, into space, and you know, sending that rocket with his car to to, to, to Mars. I'm sure that I, I'm going to guess the amount of money that went into that would, would be a good amount of money that would help into, you out. Type yeah. one diabetes that, that that would definitely help out quite a bit, though. So, of course, what what he's doing with this company is is very uh, very valuable as well. So I, I don't have a good number for you, but I, I can tell you that um, the number number one limiting factor uh, towards progression uh, for for a cure it, it all comes down to, to money and the limited amount of money that that's there. And especially in in the in the, in the uh, world of COVID nineteen, uh, for which where um, you know there's a lot less money to, to go around. Both because a lot of money is being rejected with COVID nineteen again, which is a very important thing, but but also um, like foundations overall are raising less money, and the economy has slowed down a whole lot, so yes. there's less money available overall. And a lot of the uh, traditional um, diabetes foundations that have been very supportive uh, in, in the past have had to really clamp down in terms of the amount of money they're giving out right now because their fundraising has been so small this year versus that years past, and so. Uh, it's uh, unfortunate that it does seem that um, 
COVID-19 is making it so that we were already in a bad situation where there wasn't enough money for diabetes research. And now there is even less money for diabetes research. All right. So I think, you know, what we need to do is whatever that powder is, you give the mice that makes their pancreas stop working. We got to slip some of that into like Joe Rogan's coffee or something like that. I think this is the way to get to this. I'm obviously joking. I, I, not- <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I would support that. No, I don't either. I'm just being <laughs> not, not on the, the record edge. at least. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jeff, I genuinely cannot thank you enough for doing this. And um, I just want to let you go because I've kept you much longer than I said I was going to. And thank you. And honestly, if there's anything you ever want to add and you found this valuable, please come back on. Yeah, this is really my my pleasure. I really enjoyed our conversation. And I'm hoping that uh, your your audience gets, um, you know, a little bit more information about what's going on uh, when it comes to diabetes research, because it really really is exciting. And I think there's a a lot of reasons for for hope. And I hope that message came across in our discussion. So thank you very much for having me on. It's my pleasure. Is there anywhere they can track your progress online? Yeah, so I'm very active on Twitter, at Jeffrey R. Millman. Uh, so that's usually the first place that any um, uh, announcements about progress come from, from, from my lab. Uh, and we also have a, uh, a website uh, that is fairly up to date as well that is kind of a complicated uh, address. But if you just look up Millman Lab WashU, it should be the, the very first uh, result in Google. Thanks so much to Dexcom and Omnipod for sponsoring this episode of the Juicebox Podcast. Get your free, no-obligation demo of the Omnipod tubeless insulin pump at myomnipod.com forward slash juicebox and learn all you need to know about the Dexcom G6 continuous glucose monitor at dexcom.com forward slash juicebox. Lend your support to the T1D Exchange at t1dexchange.org forward slash juicebox. Make an addition to that research and help people with type 1 diabetes to live better. Don't forget to follow Jeff on Twitter, Jeffrey R. Millman. I don't normally, what do I mean to say? I've seen a lot of people cure a lot of mice of type 1 diabetes over the years. This just felt new, a little different to me. And I thought it was well worth understanding the process that got Jeff and his group to where they are right now. I hope you found it interesting as well. I also really thought it was interesting to hear more about, you know, some of the financial support that research needs and and how difficult it is to get and the, you know, considerations behind, you know, do you want to get a regular company involved in this or do you want to keep it academic? I liked finding out more about, you know, the corners of those stories. I really appreciate what Jeff did today. I thought he was a great shepherd of the information, did a really good job of explaining it without overpromising or, you know, hyping it beyond what it was. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Thanks so much for listening to the Juicebox podcast, for sharing the show. There's a couple of great new reviews up on Apple Podcasts uh, in the US and Canada and a couple of other places. I appreciate all you guys taking the time. And thanks again for sharing the show. Just the other day, the show had its most popular downloaded slash streamed day in the history of the show, and it was 25% greater than the last most popular day. And as a matter of fact, over the last four months, the show has bested its downloads every month. It's really growing. That is definitely because of you guys, and I really appreciate it. Last thing, if you're interested in a private Facebook group for the listeners of the show, one of those exists. 
Just head over to Facebook and search for Juicebox Podcast. It'll pop up, Juicebox Podcast, colon, type 1 diabetes. That's a private Facebook group. You'll have to answer a couple of easy questions to you know prove you're a human being. And then once you're in, you're going to see what is now 5,500 users. 4,000 of them are active every day. It's an amazing Facebook group. Maybe one of the biggest anomalies in the world. Might be more of a crazy thing, this Facebook group, than telling a cell to make insulin. And by that, I mean people are actually nice on Facebook and helpful and thoughtful and not all full of ego and not always trying to prove people wrong. It's a uh, an uncommon Facebook group that I think you might like. And if you think you can make an addition to it, please jump in. If you're not looking for that much activity, but you want to keep up with the podcast on Facebook, there's also a Bold with Insulin public group. And if you're more of an Instagram person, you're looking for at Juicebox Podcast. Also, if you're looking for the Diabetes Pro Tip episodes to listen to again or share with a friend, and you're finding it difficult to dig them out of, you know, the many, many episodes that are there in your podcast app, I've put them all at diabetesprotip.com. And of course, if you have a great diabetes practitioner or you're looking for one, check out juiceboxdocs.com. Give a penny, take a penny kind of an idea. You can leave your great endo for someone else or take someone else's and give them a try.